Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, this is Sally Kate Holmes, Managing Director of Next Chapter Podcasts, here to tell you about a pretty cool new offering from our friends at Apollo Podcasts. You can now find the play on podcasts on Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators such as us. You can listen ad-free, early access to exclusives, behind-the-scenes, supercuts, and more on Apollo Plus. On top of all that, 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes directly to creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com. Hi, I'm Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. With me today is Greg Muscala. He is an actor extraordinaire playing Caliban in the Play On podcast series, The Tempest. He's been in various productions with the Public Theater, the Manhattan Theater Club, New York Theater Workshop, Williamstown Theater Festival, the Huntington, the Kennedy Center. He received a Lucille Lortel Award for Best Featured Actor for his work in the Pulitzer Prize winning play, Cost of Living. He was nominated for a Drama League Distinguished Performance Award for the role of Richard in Teenage Dick by Michael Liu. Greg is the founder and artistic director of the Apotite, a theater company dedicated to the production of works that explore and illuminate the disabled experience. As an actor and disability rights advocate, Greg Muscala believes in the transformative power of theater. After founding his theater company, the Apotite, dedicated to the production of works that explore the disabled experience, he's set to work commissioning his first play. I am honored to have Greg Mazgala with me today. Greg, welcome to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. Is this the first time you've played the role of Caliban? Uh, no, this is not the first time. I actually played Caliban in uh, 2015, I believe, in a production at uh, Nebraska, the Nebraska Shakespeare Festival in Omaha, Nebraska. Is is that where you're from? No, no, not at all. That was actually my first time in the Midwest, period. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a Navy brat, uh, but grew up predominantly in uh, in the Northeast um, but North Carolina is uh, is where I say I'm from. That's where I went to high school, and uh, that's where everybody kind of settled. I, I I'm always amazed at how many theater artists are base brats from uh, army or navy families. Why do you think that is? Do you know? I think if you live that kind of life, do you know you're constantly uh, starting over and reinventing yourself. So I think there's something about like taking on various roles whenever you enter a new uh, uh, school or town or environment. You know, uh, when I was really young, we only stayed uh, in places for like a year and a half at a time before we were uprooted and moved again. So there's, there's a, lot, a lot of that, just like starting over and having to kind of um, just find a new, uh, you know. Where am I in this world? Who am I? Where, you know, where are my friends? How do I? How do I adjust? How do I survive? You know, so um, uh, a lot of skills that I think. Also, in the military, you know, you're told what to wear. You know, <laughs> what, what is it? You know, what's doing? Yep. there's something very uh, there's something very similar to that lifestyle. I think in terms of uh, uh, this theater profession, in that sense, mm-hmm. you go where the work is. When did you know you were going to be an actor? 
Um, so I grew up in a, my, I grew up in a very athletic family. Um, and so, um, uh, it was around seventh grade though, that I, I took my first speech and drama class. Um, and it was actually Shakespeare. Um, my teacher's name was Christine Ryan and we had all these various assignments, you know, throughout the year. And then the first sort of acting assignment was pick a dramatic speech. Um, and I remember it was my brother actually who said, why don't you look at uh, the Friends, Romans, Countryman speech from Julius Caesar. And that was the first, I, I did that in front of the class and, you know, I, it was successful and I was, I was bitten by the bug then, but uh, Shakespeare was actually, is actually a part of my origin story as an actor. And from there, did you decide like, this is just going to be, I'm going to go for it with everything I've got. I'm going to, what were the, what was the trajectory from there? Did you start to look for high schools that had a sort of performing arts pedigree, uh, colleges? Where did you set your sights? Yeah, well, I mentioned, you know, my family, uh, we all played sports, you know, so swimming, soccer, wrestling, you know, um, I'm very active. And so I was, and I was born with cerebral palsy. So around seventh grade, you know, it became, I just couldn't keep up physically with the, uh, um, uh, other kids my age uh in the traditional sense uh and sports so um acting came along kind of right at the exact time uh and my mother was always super supportive anything i showed interest in um she um uh, supported me a, a thousand percent so um this was something that i could do that i showed interest in and talent for at the time um, so it was like youth theaters, camps, um, you know, um, anything like that. And right before the start of my freshman year, my father retired, freshman year of high school, my father retired from the Navy and we moved to North Carolina. Um, so I got involved in, you know, high school drama class and things like that. And I did my senior year of high school at the North Carolina School of the Arts, um, which was fantastic, essentially like going to college, you know, a, a year early. Um, and then, um, and then went to Boston University uh, for uh, for undergrad, um, but yeah, it became it became all all consuming in that way. That was I, I became a theater kid. Were there any other people in your family uh, that were involved in theater prior to you or in acting? No, uh, I was the I was the only one, and and continued to be so as far as I know. You know, and I'm the only fam I'm the only family member who uh, my folks are from Massachusetts originally. Um, and so, and I'm the only one who has kind of come back, uh, to the Northeast. Um, everyone else has, has remained down South, but I'm all my, I come from, a, I come from a family of teachers and nurses. Um, you know, so that's, that's the dominant profession, uh, in my family. So, um, but the military wasn't an option for me. And, you know, I would have loved to have followed in my father's footsteps in that sense. Um, but because of my disability, I wasn't, um, um, couldn't enter the military or at least in the way that I wanted to. So, um, theater became the place where I could, um, again, just, I just found community. I found networks, found friends. It was also, um, with that particular Julius Caesar speech, right. It was the first time that I felt like I had control of my audience in a way that I had never had control before. Which speech was it? Do you remember? Was it the friends? Oh, Roman's it was country? just the friends from, uh, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Right. So, um, and so, yeah, I just, you know, as a, as a person with a visible physical disability, um, you know, I'm constantly dealing with uh, looks and stares and people's reactions on the street, you know? So, um, but something about, 
embodying a character, right? And and in this case, again, like Antony and, and um, using Shakespeare's language, again, like, this is not, I mean, I, I crushed it, <laughs> you, know? Like, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, it was amazing, like that thing happened where all of a sudden, like, I, I don't know, that magical thing that can sometimes happen, that elusive thing where like the character was working on me and I, I knew I was still there, but I knew, yeah, uh, my, again, people were looking at me in a new way, seeing me in a new way. And for me, that was incredibly powerful, you know, and I think that was the hook in for me uh, to pursue this uh, more rigorously. Um, and I'm still fascinated by that concept, um, using theater as a tool, right, um, to uh, demand attention, to shift perception, right? Um, because I'm, I, I get attention everywhere I go, right? But as soon as I step on stage and that's in, that's framed in a proscenium, right, that attention becomes spectacularized and I have control in a way that I don't in my everyday life. I'd like to, if I may, ask you to, if you, if I, mean, I don't know if this is possible, you were born, I mean, cerebral palsy is something that you're born with, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So for, I don't know if, if you can convey to you know the world that does not have cerebral palsy what it is like what is uh, uh, uh you know what uh, is it painful is it um uh, what happens to your body with cerebral palsy oh sure so well cerebral palsy is a broad is a kind of broad spectrum of symptoms right um and you forgive me i'm not um uh, an expert by any means, but based on my experience, you know, um, so there, there are people, I'm ambulatory. I can speak, you know, I, I, have um, I've, um, there, and so there's a full spec. There are people who can't, can't, uh, can't speak, can't walk, can't talk, have cognitive issues. You know, it's a, there's a, a wide, uh, uh, spectrum of, of, of severity, uh, in dealing with it. So, um, you know, like Christy Brown from my left foot, right. Would be someone who has very severe cerebral palsy. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, but I'm dealing with massive amounts of tension. Basically cerebral palsy is a neurological condition that affects, uh, the body. So, um, and, uh, some sort of trauma happens before, during, or after birth, uh, right very early on. Um, and so, Basically, my what I've come to understand is my my body is in a constant state of emergency and hypervigilance. So maybe a simpler way to say that, or a more reductive way, is to think my body thinks I'm falling down all the time, right? Even just talking to you now, like my feet are gripping in the floor, right? I'm not. There's nothing. You know, I, I'm perfectly fine. I'm sitting down. We're just having a normal conversation. But my body is is operating from a place of kind of defense uh, and, and emergency. Um, so and like working in the booth, right? You know, when we were recording this podcast, it's, um, you know, I, I was like constantly negotiating that. I had to move around a bit, you know, um, and I'm kind of uh, I have a sort of sort of separate conversation that I don't think many actors have to kind of calm my nervous system down and try and calm myself down on a cellular level, right? So I can get through, um, do the work. And that's been a fascinating kind of uh, uh, exploration for me as an actor to be like, well, if this is a part of my humanity, it's a part of my identity, how do I how do I bring my full humanity, my full self, which includes my disability to 
every role that I play. And that's what was so cool about being able to play Caliban, you know, who is this other creature, right? Who's described more than once, several times, kind of as a monster, right? Um, and and described as having a very non-normative physicality. So I think it's, he's one of my favorite characters in all of uh, all the Shakespeare canon, you know, and some, that's why I was so thrilled to kind of be offered the, the opportunity to play him with such all these fantastic actors that were that were in the ensemble, you know, and there's something really fascinating about just having uh, in this iteration, just having to do it, you know, vocally. So, um, um, but where, you know, I, you know, people could see me in the booth. There's a lot. There was a lot of moving around um, on my part, you know, as much as I could uh, in the limited space. But what the, you know, that was a great opportunity for me where I felt like my physicality, my neurology, my unique idiosyncrasies as an actor and the character were allowed to merge, you know? You talk yourself through uh, uh, what is happening to you physically in the, in the same, I, I mean, I'm relating this to um, uh, anxiety uh, and, and things sort of techniques that um are, are becoming popular where you know that the the sort of self-talk um is a therapy and and it's this is revelatory to me if i'm hearing you correctly that that is also part of the uh way of navigating uh cerebral palsy is that right i mean yes it's a way that i've found you know um and i you know i i found a way in you know, to my body through through dance and work with a choreographer, you know, like uh, a, a project I did several years ago, like any other human being, kind of the root of all kind of positive and negative feelings and emotions are rooted in are rooted in the physical and rooted in the body. And I would say the same is true for me. I'm just dealing with something, uh, an extra layer or, you know. There is another system in my brain telling my body to do something uh, that makes makes me move differently than than the majority of the population. So I know I should move with fluidity, you know, and grace and ease. Right. But there is with every step, with every reach of a glass, with every syllable uttered, you know, there is a there is another I am working through another layer of, of tension uh um and resistance that most people don't deal with you know which is you know what is what do we work on as an actor is finding kind of uh a relaxed or active neutral right so my neutral is not your neutral right like so getting people to understand that right and even being able to articulate kind of what that is to somebody i mean you just asked me to articulate what cerebral palsy was what's going on in my body and that's a very difficult thing to do you know, um, so how do we give how do we give language to something that is almost without it? You know, but that's why um, embodiment of character, whether it be Caliban, whether it be Prince Hal, whether it be Hamlet, whomever, you know, can is really, I think, an awesome uh, it's an awesome exercise. Right. It's, but it's also um, you could say on a way it's cathartic. Right. <laughs> to, to be able to say. Um, okay, I am embodying this character. Um, Taliban is is a character, obviously, where, again, as I said, my personal uh, physical idiosyncrasies in the characters can meld in a way. But what happens if you do that for Hamlet or, you know, Prince Hal or Henry VIII or uh, even, you know, Anthony, Anthony, you know, 
um, you know, what happens, where's that, you know, when does it matter and when does it not? And, you know, that's just, that, again, the longer I'm in this and the more I kind of, uh, um, hopefully become a more mature human being, the more I realize like, uh, that's what all actors deal with. That's what all humans deal with. It's just kind mm-hmm. of like, what are, this is my particular, uh, again, I have, I have a legitimate kind of other, uh, layer and host of issues that I have to I have to bring into the uh, um, into the picture. Um, but I think what's awesome about, about being an artist and a theater professional is that this is a space where I can where I have learned to uh, articulate those things, mm-hmm. um, and I have to be in uh, conversation and collaboration with other people. So. Um, uh, and and what are we? What is theater? But a, a, a practice at, of empathy, right? For for ourselves and, and everyone else. Um, so I think that's it's been really incredible in that sense. Um, not easy, but it's been it's been an awesome ride. I want to I want to um, examine something that you touched on, which is that sense of that your body constantly being in a state of preparation to fall or reacting to the possibility of falling. Mm -hmm. When you're approaching a a role on stage and you're working with a director and you're working with your, your um, fellow players, are, are, are you using that sort of that being on the precipice of falling to, to help guide your movements? What is the mapping process like, I guess is the question. Yeah. I mean, again, it, that's really mapping is such a fascinating term, right? Um, uh, because I would say, um, just to clarify some things about cerebral palsy, again, I, I think it's like you're, my, I have a heightened Moro reflex, where, right, which is the startle reflex, which is our fight or flight response, essentially, right? So, um, so I would say that is very heightened for me all the time. Um, and I would say, you know, I, I approach a role just like any other actor. You know, I think as I've grown older, again, I've had to work really hard to not work hard. It's almost like work hard to do less. Right. Um, And just say, like, I'm going to move how I move. I'm going to speak how I speak. I'm going to bring everything I can, you know, everything about who I am and my my experience. Right. To to this character, the character still needs what that character needs in that moment from uh, the other character or the other actor, right? It's just going to, it may look different as I traverse the space or cut through the frame. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, I think that's the great thing is like, um, theater allows us to bring, you know, it's an art of flesh and blood, right? So what we're doing is showing ideally theater should conform to the people that are making it. And we want to, uh, reflect the, uh, entire spectrum of of humanity on on the stage and on, and on the screen right um uh so and every character i embody is going to have cerebral palsy there's nothing i can there's nothing i can do about that right like every character right. i embody right. can have my particular physicality and my particular neurology so uh and i've spent decades trying to like hide it and uh, uh, or, um, mitigate it or diminish it right which is not which is completely antithetical to good acting Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just in a place now, thankfully, um, where it's like, how, how can I show up more fully to, to every role? And again, it's this wonderful Caliban is a great, um, again, it's just like a, a, uh, just an awesome opportunity where there's somebody who is described as, 
um, physically different, right? Um, you know, and that's something I can really personally relate to and key into uh, immediately, I think, in a way that m- maybe other people uh, can't. You started a theater company. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? What was the impetus? How did it come together? I, I created it almost out of a, a sense of, uh, of necessity, right? So there were I didn't see, I was only getting cast, or I wasn't getting cast. It was like I was only getting auditions for certain types of roles um, and understanding that the industry or the field didn't had no kind no understanding, much less a nuanced uh, understanding of what uh, disability disability means, um, and so um, I wanted to I wanted to see my experience more accurately reflected on stage. That's all. Like I put very simply, like that's what I want. And understanding that I don't have I don't I don't know a lot about my personal collective history as a disabled individual, like living in the twentieth and twenty first century. So even though we have a very long history, right? Like even in Shakespeare, you got you know you got Taliban and Richard the Third, right? Uh, arguably the most of one of the most famous disabled characters in all of Western literature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a real guy. You know, I've seen his birth certificate. He was born, he lived, he died, he, you know, did all kinds of cool things. Um, so, I, you know, I commissioned a bunch of plays. And one of the first plays that we did was, um, you know, a modern adaptation of Richard III set in high school called Teenage Dick. Um, a very, which is a published play and gets filmed all over the world and, you know, all this stuff. So um, I've, I've been very keyed into Shakespeare uh, probably since uh, seventh grade and right doing that Julius Caesar speech um, because he is Shakespeare is I think a genius prophet poet right and he's used as um, a vehicle for all types of different communities to tell their stories that's been done for Af- the African-American experience the LGBTQ experience Asian Americans whoever it may be like why can't we do that for for the disabled communities as well this is just a question I have so it's an opportunity for me to just engage um, uh, with my own communities with uh, non-disabled communities and just make good work you know it's it's a way for me to stay active and engaged in an industry that is constantly telling me that I can't be here, um, you know, or at the very least puts a lot of obstacles uh, towards opportunity um, in, in my way. So um, I don't think I'm not doing anything that different than so many actors or so many theater professionals have done. It's just like I'm just looking at who who gets to tell those stories and who gets to participate in those stories. Right. I'm trying to bridge that gap. Right. Can you tell us just briefly what Teenage Dick, how it works? What the, how did you make that adaptation? In oh, nutshell? sure. Yeah. So I just had, you know, it's funny. I was sitting in a coffee shop uh, that I used to, uh, I used to live on the Lower East Side for a number of years, and there was a coffee shop I would go to every morning. And I found a book on the bookshelf. I was just thumbing through it one morning, and it was a, it was a, a essays on Shakespeare plays. And there was an essay on Richard III called The Angel with Horns, which I just thought was the coolest title. Uh, um, and so, and obviously I've been obsessed with the character and the archetype for uh, a while, um, but I just had the idea for the title um, first. And I was like, what if you said it in, in high school? Because in my kind of reading of Richard III and, you know, uh, 
his the soliloquies in Richard the Third and Henry the Sixth Three. I was like, this guy. There's something about this guy. Like he's speaking to me. You know, he says like, mm-hmm. particularly in Henry the Sixth Three, right um, towards the end, he's like, I could wear the. Uh, my my brother gets has all the luck with the ladies, right? <laughs> like, um, you know, I could I could use uh, I could wear the finest clothes. I could do all this. You know, I, I could be, I could be king. I could do other stuff, and still people would see me like this. You know, and that's like, I get that. I get that a thousand percent. You know, um, and there was something adolescent about him. You know, I just felt there was something like, or about that concern that he was voicing. Something that I really clicked into, and I was like, well, and um, so I was like, well, what if you said it in the world of high school politics? like student council, right? Where, where the, the stakes in a teenage world are still life or death. Like everything feels life or death, right? And you have all these cliques and clan, you know, if you supplant the kind of family dynamics with the different various groups and cliques and, you know, all that stuff in high school and all that pressure. Right. Um, uh, So I just, that, that was kind of the impetus and and the start for it. Also, I wanted to just, I, I don't actually like the play Richard the third very much. But as an archetype and as like as a as a human, you know, again, he was a real life human being who walked the earth. Right. I think that that's pretty. Uh, why shouldn't we look at him, you know, as as somebody to kind of mine and investigate? Um, and uh, um, I also wanted to. Um, yeah, there's there's another we put we added another disabled character. Right. We had a character called Buck who was Buckingham. Right. Who's played by a woman who was in, who was in a wheelchair, right? So to put Richard in conversation with another disabled character who has a different disability, who's of a different gender, right? To to kind of kind of get as foil for Richard, right? Um, and get them talking. I think was really uh, just an interesting experiment, which is which is borne out to be pretty pretty successful. I don't know if this is a trend. I just seem to see a lot of. Um productions of Richard the third now where they're doing Richard without the disability. What's your reaction to that? Um, angry. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, you know, I would, again, I would just say you wouldn't, you wouldn't do Othello, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't look at Othello that way. Right. Um, uh, I doubt you would cat, you would do a production of Titus Andronicus where you didn't cast Aaron the Moore as, as a, you know, uh, with an actor who was black or African American or, or a person of color, right? Mm-hmm. So, why are we not affording that same kind of respect to uh, to Richard III, who is identifiably, you know, disabled? I can see why people would want to go there, but it's not it doesn't for me. It doesn't feel well thought out. It doesn't feel nuanced. It doesn't feel respectful. Um, it's problematic on on a whole lot of levels. Uh, also, you have to understand, I come from a place where I I am. I am denied the opportunity and ability to uh, uh, and disabled actors are denied the ability to and disabled people are denied the ability to have agency over their and voice over their own story and experience. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's another, you know, and we wouldn't do that anymore again for race, ethnicity and gender in a way. And if we did, you know, hell would rain, rain down on those people. Right. The communities would would be very vocal about the problem. So why, you know, it's a question of like, why isn't disability seen on the same plane or same level as those things? Um, And that's I don't have a good answer for that. But I think um, 
again, I don't think, I just don't think you should do the play anymore. You know, um, there are certain plays we've decided you cannot do this play anymore unless you cast it appropriately and authentically, right? Mm-hmm. Intentionally. Um, so why is that still happening with Richard III? I think it raises a whole lot of questions about how larger society still views and defines uh, disability, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, at this point, uh, I'm really interested in looking at plays within Shakespeare's canon that can support the casting of multiple um, disabled actors. So, and even with um, play on, you know, uh, 2020, I worked with Louis on a, we did a Zoom reading of uh, Amy Freed's translation of Titus Andronicus, um, where all the goth characters, our concept was all the goth characters are deaf and use ASL, mm. right? So because they would have been, and my thinking behind that was, well, the Goths would have been culturally different from the Romans. They would have had a different language, right? Um, so, and all those hands and tongues get cut off, mm. right, throughout the course of the play. Mm-hmm. So what happens, you know, so here's an opportunity to cast half a dozen uh, deaf, hard of hearing actors, right, who are speaking a different language, right? So you really do, do, if you do that, does this cultural clash between the Romans and the Goths come across in a new way? Does the violence come across in a new way? If Aaron is also fluent in ASL because he and he acts as Tamara's lover, and you know, yet can he act as translator and and go between between these two worlds? How does that uh, does that amplify something new about his his role or his sense of being a kind of survivor or manipulator in, in this society, you know? So mm-hmm. again, these are kind of experiments that I, I have these theatrical experiments in my mind, you know, um, with these Shakespeare plays. Shakespeare is infinitely interpretable. I mean, again, look on experiment, right? Like taking these plays and, and, and translating them into to modern verse. I mean, again, and they're being done across the country, you know, like yeah. it's a really fascinating exploration. Like what, you know, what, Play on and Louis and others that you all are doing this in this fascinating, really incredible way. And there can be debate and, you know, about whether how people feel about that or, you know, whatever it might be. But the the stories continue and they're brought to new generations. They're seen in new ways, heard in new ways, experienced in new ways. And that's how that's how the lessons of these plays. Right. I think continue to affect our society and serve as an opportunity to to look at ourselves, right, in as as our society progresses. Have you actually been cast professionally as Richard the Third yet? I've not. I've been in a production of Richard the Third where disability was not a part of the main character. Oh my goodness! Um, that must have been excruciating. Uh, it was a complicated, fascinating experience. Yeah. Let the world listening to this podcast take note that Greg Muscala has yet to play Richard the Third in a professional production anywhere in the US, Canada, or Great Britain. <laughs> putting that out there. Just putting that out there. He's an award winner. I mean, I'm playing in Zagreb, Croatia. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm wherever. <laughs> um, <laughs> you so, know, but I think it's, it's interesting, right? Because you could say, like, what are, uh, who was it that said, they may not be history plays. Somebody said, I heard it recently, uh, they're not history plays, they're political plays. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, why why look at that play uh, about uh, you know the the rise of uh, an authoritarian? You know when we're facing this you know writ large in society. You know why do these plays come back right at at various times? You know why do we choose to do 
you know, during the uh, Bush two administration, Richard the second was being done a lot, you know, like, so um, I remember, so who, who knows what will, what will come, you know, next. Um, I wonder, you know, so back to the question, kind of the flip side of uh, the, one of the previous questions is how do you feel about uh, actors who are not disabled? Let's go to Daniel Day Lewis, right in my left foot. Mm -hmm. Um, what is your reaction to uh, actors who don't have disabilities playing characters that do? I think in 2023, that shouldn't be done anymore. Okay. It's as simple as that. Like it's, we're in the third year of the second decade of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Like do the work, like find the people. Um, again, like it's complicated because there are huge barriers to training and opportunity and all those things. But um disabled people exist we exist we live and love and work in the world um and again um if you wouldn't do that for if we know that it's wrong to do that for people of color or or people who identify um uh as lg lgbtq plus right mm -hmm. then why not afford that same respect and same rule for lack of a better term um to deaf and disabled characters yeah. When we just before the interview, um, we talked about differently abled versus disabled, and you mm -hmm. use the word disabled. Can you elaborate on that? The distinction. Sure. Um, it's interesting. We're t we talk about um, <laughs> uh, language, right? Uh, language is important, you know. Um, and we're talking about Shakespeare, who is. Um, the, the language guy, right? Um, uh, so, but I think, and Caliban has like one of the greatest lines about language, right? Um, you taught me your language and my profit on it is I know how to curse, right? Which is the title of the second episode of The Tempest, uh, right? So check it out, available uh, anywhere where podcasts are. Um, yeah, no, I think, so disabled is not a dirty word. Right. Um, there's even a movement within the community that's like hashtag say the word. Um, and um, um, I don't know what differently abled means necessarily. Right. Um, there, I, I just, that just seems odd and anomical that um, in my experience is used by non-disabled people to describe disabled people and doesn't come from within the community itself, but there are like within any, any, Within any community, they're they're kind of uh, this is a discussion, right? But I just like anybody else. Like you would say, how do you like to be anybody else from any other community? You know, the, the transgender community has been really good at this, like being very clear. You know, we know how do you like to be referred to, right? And I think that's a that's a question that works across disability and deafness as well. Like, who might you know? What do you prefer as an individual? So that's that's my personal preference. Um, I believe it is, uh, uh, it's rooted in kind of, uh, community politics from my understanding. Um, but at the end of the day, like you can't go wrong by just asking the individual, you know, what, what they prefer. Um, yeah. but I'm, uh, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that discussion. Um, but I'm more fascinated by like making work, doing the art. Right. Um, so, um, and that's, that's, I think, where the real change can occur. 
So talk about with me, uh, The Tempest. Why do you love this play? I mean, I love it. I love it for Caliban predominantly. You know, I just, I think um, it's um, actually, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know if I love the play. The play is a huge curiosity to me. Mm. You know, I think, and the more I, I'm not, I, admittedly, I'm not great at reading plays. Like I need to kind of hear them out loud. And I think what's great about, um, uh, you know, what was great about the play on festival, what's great about uh, like uh, what we just did, you know, with rehearsal and recording is like the opportunity to just hear it and hear it from the mouths, right? Hear it embodied by all these fantastic actors, right? Um, that I've admired and been in awe of for, for years, like seeing their work. Um, uh, like, uh, makes it, you know, just the action of the play clearer for me, but actually makes my, makes me just have more questions about the play. Mm -hmm. Um, and cause what a bizarre, this is just a, this is just a, it's a bizarre story, right. you know, it's a really kind of like fascinating story. What I love about, um, Taliban and his relationship to Prospero and Miranda is the, the family dynamic that they had. Uh, presumably for so many years that was suddenly, um, uh, you know, there's a, a rupture there because of what they say, you know, happened between Caliban and, and Miranda. What they um, say, meaning meaning that that uh, Prospero says, you tried to rape my daughter. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Miranda feels that way too. You know, there's obviously something happened, you know. Yeah. And Caliban has alludes to, you know, I used to be king. Of, of this island, Prospero used to be king, you know, like, uh, or duke, right? Like ruler, you know? And so there's, it's just interesting, like the, the, the connection there, the similarity between the two and Prospero is committing a similar crime to what was done to him, right? Um, that he may not be uh, aware of or conscious of or he's doing it intentionally. I just think that as like foil in that instance, I, I find that really, really fascinating and interesting. Um, because Caliban has some of the most beautiful speeches in, I, I think, all of um, that whole Be Not a Fear, Don't Be Afraid speech, right? Um, is so beautiful. Um, but again, it, I'm, again, as an archetype, he's, he's fascinating to me because he is, a, he is somebody who is, regardless of how you define him, he's, he's different. He's somebody who's other in this world, mm -hmm. right? Um, and yet he had, he speaks with kind of grace and, uh, and, and beauty, uh, and has a, I think a sense of self, right. Um, but I'm really, uh, what, what it draws me to that is kind of the, the, the family unit there and the real, um, even though he's someone who is stripped of his humanity, um, and kept, uh, is oppressed, right. Um, uh, I think something about his soul, spirit, and, and humanity really, really comes through. What do you think Caliban thinks of his mother, Sycorax? Do you think he sees her as a witch? Have you thought about that in in, in any way? Yeah, no, I think that's why that's why I think it's what they say, right? Because everything is from their perspective, right? And they are the kind of colonizing oppressive like you know force there um um and i just from my readings kind of uh and it's not in depth or anything but you know this is around the uh 
age of exploration and, you know, discovering the Americas and those reports coming back. So, um, but in talking with Andy Wolf, the director and stuff, you know, I didn't want to make him, it's, um, he is indigenous to the island, right? But he's, you know, it's like, again, this is where my own personal biography and, and experience comes through. Like, I, I wanted to be very clear to make him, he is, as they describe him, he is a monster. He is physically different, right? There is something uh, non-normative about about him. Um, and I think his mother is his mother, you know? Um, and again, like, she's, how did she get on this island? Um, and again, like, that's, those similarities are really fascinating to me. That, but the, the issue of betrayal is really interesting to me, but that the love that still exists between them, you know, um, I, I think is really strong. Like that chord to speak of mothers, right? Like you can't, yeah. um, those things are, are, are really strong. Um, it's also, again, the play is imperfect, obviously. Um, but I think Caliban is an archetype and wants a slave, always a slave within the world of this play, you know, until he, we don't see the story where he later inhabits the island and has it, you know? Right. And he's and the last gets, one, the last one standing, basically. Everybody leaves yeah. and Caliban is there alone. And there's some, I don't know, I, I'm drawn to villains and monsters, you know, um, you know, uh, but looking at them through like a, a sympathetic lens, you know, and I think that's, um, uh, I, I'm just, and again, it's not, it's not about how, how monstrous or if, if I was, if I were to embody Richard, right. Uh, or embodying Caliban, right. It's not how monstrous uh, or disabled I can make those characters, but rather how human can I make these characters, right. Because they are born of women, women you know, like they, they're still, they live in the world. Um, and um, uh, they are, that's, what's interesting to me about Caliban. He was a, successful uh generous member of a family unit before whatever this fracture was right um and you know uh is he a villain um maybe you know um i'm gonna paraphrase but i think it was stephen burkoff who said like uh you know shakespeare's heroes grow and change but villains cling to their particular obsession you know, and I think that's true for Richard and that's true for Caliban, you know, um, until he has that shift uh, at the end, he's clinging to, I, I, you know, kill Prospero, like, you know, like, you know, um, revenge, 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 right? Um, but at the end of the play, unlike Richard, Caliban kind of has a shift and a change and he does get to experience grace and he does receive his birthright, you know, it takes a lot to get there. But, um, a, a, around and around, for a little while in this production, trying even different takes with that very ending, right? Where where uh, we have Taliban say thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, that was very much a collaborative decision, yeah? Yeah, and I'm at the like, again, I think it's really interesting. I, I don't want to, it's, I, I'm more of the school of like, don't try to be more clever than Shakespeare, or, you know, like, pre yeah. present it as it is, um uh because it, it's it's Shakespeare was a contemporary playwright of his day. It's it's difficult to like put all of our 21st century knowledge 
and 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 awareness on onto these plays. I think it's important, right? But there's something where it's it's just it's just a question like where is that line between just like presenting the work as is and uh, and in informing it with everything that we're aware of today in terms of cultural consciousness and whatnot. And where is that our responsibility? And when, when do we leave that up to the audience? Um, yeah, I think these are, these are all questions, but it wasn't, um, I, it's interesting that nothing, this isn't a criticism, but no, no conversations about like the continual use of like monster deformed or, you know, anything like that came up, um, right. you know, uh, so, um, and I, I'm the type of person who wants to kind of dive into those things. That's so interesting. And so kind of, you know, um, such an important thing to open up, uh, is I think that people working with somebody who is disabled, right. Um, or working with, uh, uh, getting into the really difficult things, people don't want to talk about it. Like, let's not talk about it. Let's just do it. Right. And, and that it is important to go into a process and say, Hey, what are the boundaries here? Like, what do we, where, where are, are there boundaries or is it just, Hey, you, whatever you feel comfortable with, throw at me, you know, um, I'm, I'm open to talking about, addressing things directly, you know, things like you can say disabled, right? Right, right, sure. How, how important that is to kind of um lay the groundwork. You know, and it is it is interesting that uh because I didn't even clock it really until till just this moment. Like we did not ever really have that discussion. <laughs> Strange as it may sound, we just went into it like, yep, you're playing Caliban. This is the language. Let's go. I also think it just, it's it's a larger issue of like one thing I've learned, you know, um, and one thing that I'm working to correct in my own small way is like people don't feel like they again you have to ask like how do I what's the right word even in in speaking about disabled people right people don't have the fluency or the vocabulary to even begin this discussion right so yeah. unfortunately that's where we are in, uh, in a way in, in today in 2023. Right. Um, and so, again, but this is theater is the space, right? Identity is so big, right? In, in this field, like it's such a main heavy topic of, of conversation, I think, as it, as it should be, right? As we examine kind of the, the human experience, right? And I think that's why Shakespeare is so awesome, because, again, he is, his plays are the container for that kind of exploration, right? And he has been utilized by, um, by people in theaters of different communities to kind of uh, inject their own experiences and their own stories through his characters, right? Um, and how do we how do we see the world differently, right? In these plays that we know are all are are familiar to us in in some way. Why does he persist? Yeah. So Caliban is just kind of one of those like immediate kind of very apparent uh, uh, examples, right? But again, it's still even though he's living with you know he's still somebody who exists in the world and interacts with anybody, and I think that's that's uh, when you when you put someone like me into the role, does that suddenly become a radical, innovative act? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm I'm of the mind to say yes, yeah. right? Just because you 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 don't see, uh, you know, 
you don't see disabled deaf and disabled representation as you know as much as you should so um but at the end of the day i still have to show up and do my job and i'm part of an ensemble and i'm part of you know like so uh and at the end of the day i'm just an actor who wants to work so it's you know so it's it's keeping all of those things kind of in context and uh um uh in negotiation with each other um and at the end of the day i was just happy to have a job and get to work with such cool people and um say such cool stuff and it's really really fantastic and the experience is again that's for me it was really interesting to be in the booth where it's just nobody i don't have to deal with kind of the i don't have to deal with eyes on me right i'm I'm, we're working in a different way right we're working through the ears right yeah um and uh, i think what i've listened to so far it's it's incredible right just to be able to sit back and uh, let your imagination you know go on this story and to be able to hear the story in a new way i think it's really um really fascinating so totally agree and and uh, you do a brilliant job we got to wrap up but i just want to ask what are you working on next do you know i'm working on kind of a large scale kind of shakespeare project um you know as we've discussed like i have a, a unit of plays that i'm looking at um uh titus andronicus as you like it midsummer um, and maybe a look at like uh, Richard the uh, Third, or or just Richard, right? Richard of Gloucester, the Richard the um, Third, and and those plays, and like what happens when those those plays become inclusive of deaf disabled characters? Like what more talks about that play? But um, play on was really instrumental, you know, helping with that that Titus production from twenty twenty, um, that reading to kind of a, a sort of a first kind of a. a proof of concept experiment to kind of bring that to light. So we're, we're hoping to like bring those, uh, continue that exploration and bring those to production. So it's a lot of fundraising and negotiation and conversation on that, but Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare all the way. Uh, Greg Mazgala, you are a, a, just a terrific artist, a great a human, a, ter- a phenomenal activist. I want to thank you so much for all the work you're doing. It's just a real privilege to have you be a part of this cast and to do such a brilliant job with Caliban. Uh, I really look forward to uh, the rest of the series rolling out and to working with you again. Thanks, Bob. Lovely to see you. Best to the fam. Talk to you nice soon. To you too. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcasts.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end.com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like the 500, the 10, the Tough Juice Podcast with Karan Butler, how I Got Green Lit, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts, and our editor and sound designer is Justin Cortez. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcasts for updates on all the latest content, and don't forget to rate and review our shows. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts.